All right. <laughs> well, when I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite movies, I'm going to date myself here, but uh, how many in the room remember the movie Young Guns 2, if you, if you were around alive like that, right? So I remember being a kid, and I loved Young Guns 2. It's, uh, for those who aren't familiar, it was set in the wild, wild west, and it was kind of the story of Billy the Kid, played by Emilio Estevez, and kind of the classic tagline, punchline of the movie was this, uh, the scene where he says, click, click, I'll make you famous, Right? Pulls out the gun. I'll make you famous. And me and my friends, we'd be hiding in the bushes, and we'd jump out and surprise each other. Yoo-hoo! I'll make you famous, you know? And that was just kind of the line. And, uh, you know, our parents still remember us saying that when we were kids. And the idea, though, was, like, the reason that Billy, the kid, the reason that he would make you famous is because you got killed by him, right? Like, I'll make you famous by shooting you, and then you will be known as the one who got shot by Billy, the kid. And I think in many ways, this is like the voice of the enemy often in our culture today. That there is an appeal, we live in a celebrity culture where fame is one of our highest kind of values and there is often uh, the voice of the enemy going, hey, I'll make you famous, but I'm going to do it in a way that kills you, that can lead to your destruction. I'll offer you fame, celebrity, recognition that you might be known, seen, recognized, paid attention to, and yet I'm going to do it in a way that maybe slowly, gradually over time tears away and deteriorates your soul. We want to look at this idea of fame today. Fame is our number one value today. As a culture, I'd suggest fame is our number one value. It's interesting, researchers have been studying for years, for decades actually, but they've noticed a change in recent years where uh, over the years they have this list of 16 values or criteria and they kind of measure what our kids or younger generations expressing as most valuable out of these 16. And they also look for what are the messages that are most presented, whether in uh, media, uh, TV shows, music, pop culture. And uh, for years, fame was like number 14 to 16. It would show up every year at the bottom of the list as one of the lowest. Uh, highest in the list used to be things like uh, community identification, that you saw yourself as a part of a broader community, family, neighborhood, friends, relationship and all. And what they've seen is a flip, particularly over the last decade or so, that now fame has skyrocketed from the bottom to the top of the list, been number one every year now for years in a row. And some of those other things like community identification or whatever has gone down to like number 14 to 16 every year. And there are, when you ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? The top one uh, over a decade ago, it was more like a, a doctor or a teacher. And these are still number one around the world. Uh, all around the world, the developing world, doctor or teacher tend to be the most aspiring uh, professions. But today, uh, the top three are to be a, look at it here so I don't mess it up, uh, to be a sports star, a pop star, or an actor. And it's interesting, they question, well, why? What's going into this? And uh, for a while, they thought maybe reality TV, where popularity is the big thing. Uh, But increasingly, especially like with social media, in the sense that uh, they're finding, you know, when you get that like on your Facebook post or that uh, heart on your Instagram thing, or if you get that ding, that notification on your phone that someone's reaching out to you, you find it actually sends a shot of dopamine, like a chemical ding, like a ding, like to your brain that feels good. And it can actually become addictive. And so there is this sense that um, fame has skyrocketed to become one of the driving values of our culture, but they're also linking it to things like anxiety and depression and even the tragic rates of suicide that have been rapidly rising, especially among younger generations in our society. Particularly when uh, your identity is driven by whether or not you're seen or noticed or recognized, then when that doesn't happen, which is going to be the case for most of us, then the, the letdown 
and the after effects where the enemy kind of goes, hey, I'll make you famous. You can run after this trail, but this could be a road that ends up killing you. So we want to look this morning at how might Jesus and the gospel speak into our cultural moment and how we might live and find life in him in profound ways. Uh, We're in this series called Love Walked Among Us where every week we've been looking at Jesus and the gospels and trying to slow down and go not just what did Jesus say, but how did he say it and how did people interact with him? What were their agendas that they were coming to him with? And how did, let's, let's notice the look in his eyes, the expression, the emotion how Jesus lives and responds, because Jesus is love walking among us, the love of God incarnate, and he shows us how we as his people might embody his love today. Uh, The title from a sermon this morning is, I'll Make You Famous, and the idea is that you were made for something more than fame. Would you turn to the person next to you and tell him you were made for more? That's right, you were made for more than fame. You were made to be filled with the very life of God. And so let's look here in 7, verse 1, chapter 7. John 7, verse 1. Read that after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things... Show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. All right, well, the first thing we see here is that Jesus' goal is not to be famous, but to be faithful. Right? Like his primary goal is not to become famous, but to be faithful. And it's not that fame is inherently bad, uh, but it's what is driving you, what's kind of ultimate. And when we look at Christ, what's driving him here is not to be famous, but to be faithful. Uh, Basically, this scene is Jesus' family wants him to go to the big city to become famous. When they say, hey, go up to Judea for the Feast of Booze, uh, what they're saying is like, dude, this is Judea, Jerusalem. This is like, go to New York City. Go to Washington, D.C. This is the national capital, kind of the center of the national life. This is where everyone is going to be. Get out of hillbilly country here in Galilee, right? And go up to the big city, the big apple for the big festival. And the Feast of Booze is the time that we, we read this is happening. So the Feast of Booze, this is one of the three big holidays of the Jewish year where people would come from not only Israel, they come from all over. Uh, and so the population would swell with throngs, scholars are saying, over a million people, which in that day was huge. So the picture that we should have in mind, Jerusalem uh, for the Feast of Booze, we look more like this, like New York City on New Year's Eve, right? Like We should have in our mind, this is like everybody's going to be there. No one's out here in Hillbilly Country in Galilee, but everyone's going to be there. And Jesus, you can, dude, you got the talent to make it. You can do the miracles, you can do the stuff, you can blow their minds. And so Jesus, get up to Judea for the Feast of Booze, show everyone what you can do, make a name for yourself, Get the notoriety, get seen, get attention, get recognition. And you're going to blow up. You're going to go viral. You're going to be the next thing, Jesus, if you can just get up there. And they say, show yourself to the world because no one who seeks to be known openly, they assume he wants to become a public figure. His end game is his own notoriety. And it's interesting, this mirrors Satan's temptation to Jesus in the wilderness. 
When Jesus is in the wilderness, he hasn't eaten 40 days, and Satan comes, and the enemy tempts him, and he says, hey, Jesus, go up to the temple where everyone's going to be, and the crowds and the throngs are there, and throw yourself off the temple. God said he's not going to let you fall. He'll catch you. And when everyone sees the spectacle, the spectacular, they'll know that you're the Son of God, and they'll follow you. They'll put your trust in you. Satan essentially says, go become famous by forcing God's hand. And Jesus says, no. He's not driven by the crowds. He's not driven by the need for acclamation or fame. He's driven by the love of the Father. And I love uh, Paul Miller, the author of uh, Love Walked Among Us, the book that the series has kind of been inspired by. I love how Paul Miller puts it. He says, uh, you know, if Jesus were to have done this, if Jesus were to succumb to either his family's temptation here with his brothers or Satan's temptation, that his miracles would not be expressions of love there would be manipulations of power, right? Like he would be using his power, his strength, more to exalt himself rather than to serve and lift up his world. And so Jesus, his ultimate goal we see here is not to become famous, but to be faithful, to live faithfully. And there is this reality that you and I, though, we often want to become famous, right? Like maybe not, I'm going to be a superstar and, you know, like... I don't know, I'm not going to win the Grammys or whatever, especially if you, yeah, I, I don't have the talent for that, right? Uh, but we do want to be seen. We want to be noticed. We want to be recognized. And I think often beneath the desire for fame is a desire to be seen. Be seen. And that's not all bad. There's actually something good beneath that, that God has made us to be seen by him, to be known by him and by others, to actually walk in community. Yet one of the ironies of fame, I think, is that uh, the more people you are seen by, often the less known you actually are. And often to truly be known requires kind of a smaller crew or circle that really knows you. And so you read interviews with people who have blown up and become famous, and they often will talk about how difficult it can be and unexpectedly hard. And some of us are like, okay, give me that hard. You know me, right? But, but there's a sense where they go, well, I, you know, I, I, now all the eyes are on me, but I don't feel like people actually know me. You know, they see this projection of me or this perception that they want to see. And likewise, I feel like I have to keep up the projection or the impression or uh, the thing that they're going to like. And you see some folks downstream going, I don't think I really actually even knew who I was underneath. And so there can be this danger, this allure that if you can just get seen by enough people, but you get to that spot and you realize, yeah, I'm seen, a lot of eyes are on me, but I'm not truly known. I was watching uh, this week a documentary on the Fire Festival. Have you seen this, right? Fire Festival. So the greatest party that never happened, or whatever. And if you know the backstory, so this guy, Billy McFarland, uh, teams up with Ja Rule, like the music mogul, you know. And they're like, dude, we're going to throw the biggest music festival anyone's ever seen. It's going to be on the Bahamas, super elite. Like, it's going to cost loads of money um, to be there. And so they get, uh, like, some supermodels and some famous influential people down on the island, and they get them kind of Instagramming and posting, like, we're here on the place where it's going to be, and it's going to be fire, it's going to be lit. Like, everyone get down here. And, like, within 40 hours, the thing sells out. And people are plucking down, like, thousands and thousands of dollars um, some of the tickets, like resort packages, were estimated up to like $250,000 people paid to like go be a part of this music festival. And 
the irony was when people actually got there, they had, they had none of the preparations or planning done to pull off the musical festival. So when everyone gets there, they, they show up to like FEMA refugee tents and like styrofoam packages with cheese sandwiches and stuff, you know, and just going, what, what happened? How did we all get sucked into this? Uh, but as people were commenting and analyzing, they go, dude, so much of it was like FOMO, like the fear of missing out, right? There was a sense of this big thing's going to be happening with all the hip in people, and you're going to miss out unless you can put down the money and give whatever you got to give to be around it. I think sometimes fame is like that. Like we want not just necessarily to be famous, but at least to be around famous people or to be around the popular crowd, even on a microcosm like in high school we want to sit at the cool kids table we want to chum up if we can get close enough to the people that have influence and notoriety maybe some of it will rub off or then we'll be kind of in and yet when you give your life for that you can wind up not truly being known not truly knowing who you are and you're sitting with your styrofoam box and your cheese sandwich just bummed right on the corner this was not what I was promised this is not what it was cracked up to be And Jesus, in contrast, he calls us to be faithful. He calls us to be faithful. Jesus reveals that showing up in the little places is more important than showing off in the big places. And I'm tempted by, you know, this is convicting for me, uh, where I find, like, I've got three kids, nine, five, and four years old. And I, I found this showing up at times now with like social media and my phone, I've got a smartphone, I'm not anti-technology or whatever, but I found when I'm at the playground with my kids, like there's this temptation to like, you know, like, like try and keep up to, to see what's going on in the big outside world and to be seen, to put my two cents in, to say my thing, whatever. And that desire to be seen can actually suck me out of seeing the very ones that God has called me to be present to. And noticing my kids are often looking like, is dad watching me on the, the jungle gym bars? You know, dad can, you, dad, can you come and help me, you know, go down the slide with me? And I'm like, oh, you're interrupting. You know, like, like there can be that temptation as parents. And it's interesting now they're finding with kids, uh, child psychologists are doing a lot of research on this and going, dude, what are we doing to our children? We often focus on uh, how, when do we let them use technology and how much, but we're not often focusing on how do we use technology around them because they're finding for a lot of kids now Uh, There's a lot of anxiety and depression, things wrapped up with looking at mom and dad. The kids will do drawings of their parents and their family life at home. And a common motif or theme is dad's on the computer, mom's on the the phone, and they're too polite to say it to their parents or they're too afraid maybe or whatever. But when they're actually processing it with their counselor or whatever, they're like, I'm angry inside. I'm like, shut down, stinking computer. Like, get off your phone and spend time with me, like, what it communicates is everything else out there is way more important than I am. And I think that sometimes in our desire to be seen, we can forsake the very ones that God has called us to see. Who are those people that God has put in your life that it may not be the popular crowd, it may not be the the people or the places that are going to give you a lot of accolades or attention, but that God has called you to pour attention into, to notice, to be present with, to be present to, to invite to your family table that might not have much to bring, that you could actually see them and notice them and be attentive to them. And where are those places in your own life where you feel unseen? Often we're going to neglect that when we feel like, I think often the desire for something like an affair, I found in counseling a lot of marriages in crisis, that often 
It's not like someone's going, hey, I want to be famous, but it is kind of going, often going, like, I don't feel seen at home in my marriage. And yet here's someone that I feel like they notice me. They pay attention to me. You know? And sometimes when things get hard in the, the mundane and the simple and the everyday, we can start to look to be seen and noticed in places that ultimately lead to our destruction. But the invitation that Jesus has is going, we actually can be fully known and seen by God. And when his love fills us, we don't need to be running around trying to get other folks to like us and pay attention to us. So let's move to the next segment of the passage here. So how does Jesus respond to this temptation? Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. I love how he's like, your time is any time. You guys, are, you guys are content with whatever, but I'm actually dependent on the Father and my time. There's a time that's coming to be famous, but it's not yet here. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. What these we see here, Jesus tells us, is that timing is everything. Jesus' timing is everything. Jesus depends on God for the timing. Because the reality is Jesus is supposed to be famous. Right? It's not that fame is inherently bad. Jesus is actually going to become the most famous person the world has ever known. It is 2019 because we mark our calendars from year zero when he, his life, right? And so Jesus is destined for fame. Fame isn't necessarily the problem, but how he gets there and when, the timing is significant. <clears throat> love, Jesus says, like true love, it does the will of the Father, not the will of the voices. Like it's driven and dependent on God and trusts in his timing. I think there is the reality that uh, for some of you, like some of us are destined for great things. There are uh, things or movements or people that you are supposed to lead or to influence or great contributions you are to make to the world that God has in store for you. And yet perhaps the timing is not yet. The timing is not yet. This is a common theme that we see throughout Scripture is that God often gives a call, but then there is a delay between God's call and the fulfillment of that call. So you think about Abraham. God's like, hey, Abraham, comes to him in Genesis 12. You are going to be the father of a great nation. Loads of kids, grandkids, great grandkids. You guys are going to grow, and you're, I'm going to bless the world through your family line. And yet then the next few decades, Abraham has no kids. right? Or God, I think with Moses, since you're going to be a deliverer, you're in Pharaoh's palace, you see your people in bondage and slavery, and yet it's going to be over 40 years before Moses actually steps into that. David, you're anointed king. You're going to be king over my people. And yet he's chased and on the run, hunted for his life for a decade-ish, about a decade by Saul. And so God often gives the call, but then there's this in-between time where it can almost feel at times like the opposite of the call. And what do we do in that in-between time, in that space? Because some of the biggest mistakes that are made are when we try and make the thing happen prematurely. You see with... Abraham and Sarah, it's when they desire to make the thing happen to get the kid that's going to bring the family. Uh, when they try and do it prematurely, that's when the whole Hagar and Ishmael debacle goes down. It's when Moses tries to kickstart delivering his people by killing the Egyptian that he gets himself banished out in the wilderness for 40 years. 
And so <clears throat> we see that often maybe the call is right, but timing is everything. And Jesus teaches us to trust and depend on God for the timing. Jesus is content to be in the hidden places in that in-between time, out in Galilee, out in Bush League, right? And are we, are we content to be hidden? There are a few benefits, I believe, to the hidden places, right? And that that hidden place, and that in-between time, it's a time that God forms you and prepares you for what's to come. One of uh, the key problems I think we often see in leadership is folks who are given too much too soon. I grew up at a time where, uh, you know, seeing a lot of folks who were like 20, 25 years old, they were gifted, talented, and so they were just kind of catapulted onto these huge platforms, huge whatever, and yet they didn't have the character internally to do it well, and it ended up crushing them and leaving a lot of fallout around them and others. It's a problem of being given too much too soon and I believe there's a formation that God wants to do with us in some of those places that can feel hidden. It, it can be that even as simple as when, uh, you know, I'm with my kids in the park and going, am I actually going to play with them or am I going to get sucked out of this thing? Like, I think there's a formation going, am I going to serve or am I going to seek to be served? In this area where I feel like this stuff could give me something, but here I want to actually lay down my life and be, be formed as a person who serves. I think it's interesting, uh, Bono, kind of the famous you know, lead singer of U2, uh, one of the most famous bands of all time. But I remember an interview with him where he was kind of asked, like, how do you approach or see fame? And he talked about it as like, well, I, I see fame as like a currency, right? Like the reality is um, I, I've got it, and then, but the question is how am I going to spend it, right? And <clears throat> I think that question of if you had maybe the influence you want or the attention you want or things, like what would you use it for? Like, would you use it to serve yourself? Or would you seek to leverage it to actually serve and lift up others? That was part of Bono's point was going like, I actually, see, I've got this currency of fame, but I want to use it to spotlight people who are hurting or are in need or communities that, that need help lift it up and a lot of the humanitarian and charity type work that he's done around the world. If we actually had the attention that we want, how would we use it? Is it really about exalting ourselves? Or are we allowing God to form us and sometimes the simple things and the places that seem hidden and less known, less known already, are we allowing God to form us there as a people who serve and lift up others? We find that discipleship is not in the grand, it's in the grind, right? Discipleship, it's, it's not in the grand, the big, the spectacle, it's often in the grind. And I think that God hides unexpected gifts for us in those hidden places, um, if I can just kind of be honest for a moment, like, all right, like, man, things as a preacher, maybe you're not supposed to say, right? But there are times where, over the years, like, when uh, Seth mentioned the, the, you know, the books, and when the first book came out, I remember feeling this pressure of, like, man, I, I, I want to go get it out there and get it out there. And, and I was a global pastor at the time overseeing our international partnerships, and I really felt like I got to go serve overseas. Like, it felt like, man, we're making this big impact. And there were times where I could see my kids, my family life, as like an obstacle to ministry, right? Like as, a, as an obstacle to the destination that God had. And sometimes it was frustrating to cut back on the travel schedule or cut back on those things that I thought would kind of whatever. And yet God brings unexpected gifts in the hidden places. What I found is the beauty that my kids are the destination, right? Like 
my family, that life, that is the destination. Like uh, pressing into those areas and finding, I would take this over. I've talked with grandkids of people who were, uh, one of my friends, she's the granddaughter of a famous minister who did all this stuff. And, uh, but she goes, yeah, grandpa was out saving the world and he was never here for us at home. And she dealt with a lot of bitterness and hostility or anger, you know, at, at that history. And going, actually the stuff that God reveals in the grind is often way better than the stuff that we're tempted to go leave it for. It's actually way more fulfilling. And what you find often, too, I've found, is in those simple places of simple faithfulness in the relationships and people God's put around you, that, man, it's a place where you're not only seen, but you become known. People who know you, not just the shiny, polished Instagram picture you put up of life being perfect, right? But people who know the dirty, just got out of bed, hair's a mess, breath stinks, haven't brushed your teeth yet, falling, you're falling over yourself, you know, like, people who know you. And I believe that can become closer to a window of the God who knows us. He knows us warts and all. To find yourself known in those places. I love uh, Paul Miller talks about, again, in Love Walked Among Us, how uh, because Jesus is filled by God, he doesn't need to run around trying to get others to like him. Believe me, the hidden place is a place that God wants to form our identity. That our identity is driven by what God says about us, not what others say about us. I love how Jesus says, hey, the world hates me, right? And the world doesn't hate him because he's annoying or whatever, right? Like, the world hates him because he's not driven by its agenda. He's driven by the Father's agenda, the world. And he's got this unassailable identity that other people's stuff can't, touch, no matter what they throw at, even when they put him on a cross in the grave, it can't touch his identity that is rooted and grounded in the Father's love. Which is something I love about Jesus. He's not looking for your vote, right? Like, he's not trying to get you to like him or to pay attention to him. He loves you. He's going to give his life for you, but he doesn't need you in that way, right? His identity is not driven on what you think about him. Jesus is not like Running for class president going, hey, guys, if you just, if I get enough people to like me, if you put me in office, like, I'll bring back the vending machines and we'll get Bieber to come for high school prom. And, you know, like, Jesus is not making promises he can't keep and just trying, trying to get us to like him. He knows that ultimately his fame, his exaltation, it's not driven by what he can muster up. It's driven by what God has promised to do as his father for him, as his beloved son. His identity is secure in that. And Jesus invites us that our identity can be, insecure, can be secure in that. Yesterday I was driving with my family across town and, uh, to the park. And, and my, my son James, he asked me, there's one of those businesses with all the balloons out in front, kind of floating up. And, and James, he asked me, he's like, Dad, why are, all those business, why are all those balloons out there? And I was thinking about the sermon today. I was kind of like, oh, well, that business is just insecure. So they're doing stuff to try and get everyone to look at them, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is not true, it's just a promotional thing. But sometimes I think that's like a picture of us, right? Like we're trying to float the balloons and do the stuff to like just everyone look at me, trying to get attention to get folks to look at them. And yet when your identity is grounded and rooted in God's love for you, you don't need to spend all that time and energy getting attention from others. You actually become secure in who you are enough to actually pour attention into others and to be present to those that God has put in your life. All right, well, let's move to the final movement of this passage. Um, 
Verse 10, it says, uh, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he, Jesus, also went up, not publicly, but in private. I love this. There's something interesting there. Like, Jesus tells his brothers, No, I'm not going. You guys go up. Then after they go, he waits a bit, and then he goes. And so what's going on there? Did you just trick him? Well, he goes, but he goes in a very different way. They wanted him to go and showboat, show off, do his thing. And he goes incognito, like spy hunter Jesus, like cloak and dagger, wearing his, I don't know what he's doing, but he's like, he's like going discreet, subversive behind the scenes. And then when he gets there and eventually he does some teaching and like people start mumbling and, 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 and grumbling about who is he? Is he the Messiah? Is he not? And a lot of the rest of this passage is people grumbling and arguing over his identity. Uh, the sense that they, they don't trust God necessarily. This is the one that God has sent. And it climaxes this passage in verse 37, where it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, so what's going on here? Well, the last day of the feast. To understand the significance of this, I think it's helpful to understand more about this feast, the Feast of Booths. And what this celebrated, uh, again, it was Israel, it celebrated Israel's experience in the wilderness when God provided, and particularly when God provided water from a rock. And so to remember this event, uh, all the people would build these, like, it was like a national camping trip where they'd build little booths and huts and tents, and the whole nation would go camping together for like seven days. Like in Jerusalem, they, you know, build, build these booths outside of their homes or in the temple courts or in the square and, and all around. And so everyone was kind of going camping, and it reminded them of this time in the wilderness when they were grumbling against God, going, God's left the building, we're going to die here, he doesn't care for us, we're all alone, we're unseen, we're unknown, we're unrecognized, we should have just died in Egypt. And because of their grumbling, Moses in anger, he strikes the rock that God told him he was going to bring water out of, but God, Moses does in anger, he strikes the rock with a staff, the rock splits open, and life-giving water comes out to provide for God's people. So it commemorated God providing water from a rock for his grumbling people. And the way that they would celebrate this ceremony, this festival every year, so it's a seven-day camping trip, and on the seventh day, the priests would go to this place called the Pool of Siloam, and they would get these buckets of water, and they would carry them and make the journey from Siloam up to the temple in Jerusalem. And they would go to the altar, and the altar was seen as like associated symbolically with that rock in the wilderness. Uh, and where the animals get cut open, like the, the rock getting split open, and they would pour the water over the, the altar. And then they would grab, they would also take these willow branches, and they would come up, and all the people would be gathered around, and they would beat the altar or the rock with these willow branches. And it was a sign of them calling out to God, recognizing uh, we're dependent on you for rain, for water, for life. It happened at the harvest time, going, God, we need you to provide in order for the land to be fruitful and us to be provided and cared for. So at the center of the ceremony, on the last and the great day, Jesus stands up and he identifies himself as this rock, as the one who's about to be sacrificed on the altar, so to speak, and says, basically, like, all who are thirsty, come to me. I am the living water, and if you drink from me, not only will you receive life and water and all from me, of God's very presence, his spirit, but it will give rise to living water flowing not only in you but out of you and bringing life and abundance and fruitfulness to the world. 
Jesus reveals here that the road to stardom, the road to true stardom, is not through self-exaltation, but through sacrifice. That the road to true stardom is not through self-exaltation, but through sacrifice. Jesus is the rock who's going to be struck in anger to bring life-giving water to a grumbling people. Jesus is the one who's going to allow himself to be broken, to be torn open. This is how Jesus becomes famous. Jesus is going to become the most famous person in the history of the world, and yet his road to fame is through laying his life down. His road to fame is by being murdered, allowing the enemy to murder him in order to bring us life. In a moment, we're going to come to communion, where we come to the body broken and the blood shed of Christ our Lord. And as we come to communion, uh, we come to Jesus, the one who allowed himself to be split open in order that he could bring the life-giving presence of God bursting forth to us as a grumbling people. Us as a people who have complained, God, you've left me on my own. I, I don't feel seen by you. I don't feel known by you. And God's like, yes, just trust me. I'm here and I'm so with you, so for you. that Even in the midst of our grumbling, God goes, I will come myself as the love of God, will walk among you and allow myself to be split open to bring my life for you. So if we return to that, uh, that phrase, you know, kind of the beginning, earlier I was talking about that, that, that movie, uh, that I'll make you famous, right? And on the one hand, I love that phrase, so on the one hand, that's like the enemy's phrase, I think, to us today. It's like, hey, I'll make you famous. I'll get you attention. I'll get you celebrity. I'll get you noticed. I'll get you recognized. I'm going to do it in a way that destroys you. Like the solution is not to go, hey, just fame is bad, or the solution is actually to go, no, Jesus, I'll make you famous, like, Jesus, I want to use my life to lift you up. And the way that I'm going to use my life to lift you up is through faithfulness. Like, it's to follow you. One of the things I love at Redemption, one of our core beliefs is uh, we believe we're called to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. That the way of Jesus becomes our way. That we seek to lift up Jesus, uh, not by any means possible. Uh, the ends don't justify the means. We don't believe in using corruption or integrity or unintegrity or abuse or bad things to try and lift up you. We believe that if, if we're going to do lifting up and exalting Jesus, we're called to do it the same way, by laying down our lives for one another and laying down our lives for the world that he loves and living ultimately not to exalt ourselves in fame, but to give our lives in faithfulness to God our Father through Christ his Son and the power of his Spirit for his world. Would you join me in prayer? <laughs> Jesus, thank you God, that you call us not to become famous, but to be faithful, God. God, that thank you, you reveal that the love of the Father, your love for us, God, that, that we are seen by you, that we are known by you. Lord, I pray that we would be filled as your people by your love in such a way, God, that we don't feel like we need to go running out to other places to try and be seen or noticed. God, I pray that your love would form us in our identity, that we could have confidence that no matter what others might say, God, that we are secure in you. And God, I also pray, God, that, God, we were made to be known. And so, God, I, I pray that 
our lives would be known by you. If there are any areas in our lives this morning that we feel like we've been hiding because you might not, not, not like it or it might not be good enough or whatever, God, thank you for your grace, God. I pray for the freedom as we come to the table this morning of Christ broken and poured out for us that we would bring the hard parts we maybe wanted to keep before you, God. You already see it. You already know it's there. So I pray we'd be able to bring that before you. And God, I thank you that fame, man, it's like it makes a great condiment, but a bad entree. God, that, that there is a sense that as we, uh, God, I do pray that as we live faithfully, that you would lift up and exalt some among here, God, to lead companies, movements, people, businesses, things, God, that they could actually bring life to your world, uh, but that our identity wouldn't be wrapped up in it, God. Like our identity would be wrapped up in simply being faithful to you and living before you. And that you might then, then use us, God, in ways to, to lift up and to care for and serve your world. That we would not be a people of self-exaltation, God, but we would be a people of sacrifice that give our lives for one another. We give our lives for the people who maybe it doesn't seem like they got much to bring, God. We would be a ple- people of hospitality who are having, paying attention to our kids and little ones who are inviting people who, who might be on the outskirts of the periphery, that we bring them to our table, God, that we would pour into and invest. And ultimately, God, that as we live faithfully, Lord, that you would bring the life and presence of your spirit, God, just in abundance in our lives as a community and, and into our neighborhoods and our world, God. Pour Pour out your presence, God, pour out your spirit. You've given us your presence, God. We just pray for more. Lord, we want to walk further, deeper into life with you and faithfulness to you, God. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.